0: Who is Jesus? That might be the most important question you ever answer in your life. Who is Jesus? Why is his life and death and resurrection and ascension good news? Now, constantly, all the time in our life, we're being impressed upon by different people and different environments and different situations. Something is always pressing on us, and it's changing who we are and how we think about things. It's changing the uh, way I get my microphone stuck on stuff. And, uh, but all the time, like the outside forces of our lives are trying to shape us, trying to change the way that we think, uh, the way that we live, the way that we shop, the way that we vote, the way that we love. And these outside forces are always pressing upon us because no matter how hardened you might feel, you're impressionable. You're like, you're you're... Um, being changed by your environment and the people around you and the voices that you hear and the shows that you watch and the news media you consume. And you're constantly being pressed upon and you're getting all these different things imprinted into you and it's changing how you look and how you act. Now, the church exists to create disciples, students of how Jesus lived and loved, apprentices of this way of life. We're to be shaped by Jesus. The thing that's supposed to be impressing upon us is jesus because we're supposed to live and love like he did Um, did you know that if you go and visit new york city even just for a day you walk faster in new york city than you do when you're not in new york city just being in the city makes you walk faster psychologists have done an experiment and when you're in new york city you walk faster the environment of just being in new york city makes you walk faster than you normally walk anywhere else isn't that interesting Something so small just being in a different place has an imprint on You if we want to be molded into the likeness of jesus uh, We need to learn about who jesus was what he taught what he was here to do so that he can impress upon us So he can change what we look like and how we live We want jesus to change our walk just like being in new york city changes. How fast you walk now the only problem with that is if we're not careful we develop versions of jesus in our mind that we're racing to become like that are incomplete pictures of what he was like and what he was about or they're just downright incorrect pictures opposite to who he was and what he was about um so to correct those kind of incomplete and incorrect pictures we have of jesus and what his central mission and message was we're doing a study in the gospel of matthew exploring who jesus was and what his central teachings were we're going to explore who he was and what his central message and mission were but before we jump into the gospel of matthew though we have to deal with the word gospel itself why do we call matthew mark luke and john gospels does anybody know why do we call them gospels okay well i'm going to tell you today Um, It means, the word gospel means good news And it comes from Engelion in the greek It was a political word in the first century, not a theological word It was used by the emperor To announce a birth of an heir or the conquering of a new kingdom So the roman empire might send out a news announcement Gospel, good news, we conquered this part of europe Or gospel, good news, we conquered this part of palestine Um, For Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John to call their accounts of Jesus' life Gospels was to make an overtly political statement. Because these words weren't used as theological words, they were used as political words in the first century. They were announcing that a new world leader was being crowned in opposition to Rome. There was a new government, there was a new king. To claim that Jesus' teachings were good news was to say that they were a rebel manifesto against the current established kingdom. Paul instructed Christians to call Jesus Sotor and Kyrios, which means Lord and Savior, titles that were only to be used together for the emperor. To say Jesus was Lord and Savior was to say that Caesar was not. It was a statement that the balance of power in the world had shifted, that the Roman Empire claimed to teach humans the way they should live. They called people outside of the Roman Empire barbarians because they're like, we have civilization, we have culture. This is the way humans should live. They saw conquering as not only beneficial to their empire, but they saw it as a way to transform the world and make it into the way it should be. And this gospel of Jesus was very different. It wanted very different things, but it was being held up as the true way to live and love in opposition to the way that the Romans said. Humans should live and love. Now, we call the four accounts of Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension gospels because they proclaim the rise of a new kingdom and a new king, a new way of life for humans. And in this book, in the book of Matthew, we'll see what Matthew thought the good news was all about. We'll see why he thought Jesus' life and death and resurrection and ascension were good news and are still, is still good news for us even today, 2,000 years ago later and we'll also get a clearer picture of who jesus was and what he was about if we have a wrong idea of who jesus was and what he was about what we'll find is we'll start to think that anything we like is making us into the image of god this happens real subtly in our lives we have a wrong idea about jesus What we begin to do is, well, I like that, so that's got to be something Jesus would like, too, by extension. That's not necessarily the case. A Jesus that doesn't impress upon you, or doesn't impress upon us his image, but who uh, who we impress our own image upon him. That's what happens when we begin to mold this fictional idea of Jesus in our mind, an incorrect, incomplete view of Jesus. If Jesus always agrees with you, You're probably worshiping yourself and calling it jesus if jesus always agrees with your political party You're probably worshiping your political party and calling it jesus So let's jump into matthew and explore who jesus really was and is and what he's all about matthew chapter 1 Verse 1. We're going to hit the first 17 verses Today an account of the genealogy of jesus christ the son of david the son of abraham Abraham fathered Isaac, Isaac fathered Jacob, Jacob fathered Judah and his brothers, Judah fathered Perez and Zerah by Tamar, Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Aram, Aram fathered Abinadab, Abinadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz by Rahab, Boaz fathered Obed by Ruth, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered King David. I wish I could wrap this, it'd be so much better. David fathered Solomon by Uriah's wife. Solomon fathered Rehoboam. Rehoboam fathered Abinijah. Abinijah fathered Asa. Asa fathered Jehoshaphat. Jehoshaphat fathered Jerom. Jerom fathered Uzziah. Uzziah fathered Jothram. Jothram fathered Ahaz. Ahaz fathered Hezekiah. Hezekiah fathered Manasseh. Manasseh fathered Ammon. Ammon fathered Josiah. And Josiah fathered Jekonah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon i just got to take a breath for a second okay and after the exile to babylon jaconi Je- fathered shetiel shetiel fathered zerubbabel zerubbabel fathered abidad abidad fathered elakim Eleakim fathered azor azor fathered zadok zadok fathered akim akim fathered eliod eliod fathered elenezer elenezer fathered Matham. Matham fathered jacob Jacob, finally get into some names I can pronounce. Jacob fathered Joseph, the husband of Mary, and gave birth to Jesus, who is called the Messiah. And so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David until the exile to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the exile to Babylon until the Messiah, 14 generations. Riveting stuff. Are you moved by that? You just feel encouraged? That's like your verse of the day? You know, you're like, oh, thank you for that. Zadok fathered Akim. Thank you, Bible app. You know, like, what an inspiring verse. You're gonna throw that one up on your fridge because it's so great, right? Everyone loves listening to you read off the meaningless data on your ancestry.com, you know, report, right? You're like, that's great for you. I know you're excited, but it's boring for us. Like, we don't wanna hear all these names. So Matthew starts out in a pretty exciting way, right? That was riveting. Um, A long list of difficult to pronounce names. Now, when I was new to the Bible, and I would come across a genealogy like this, I'd go skip and I'd go right past it. Cause I'm like, why are you wasting my time Bible? That's really what I would think. I'm like, this is pointless. Like this is so boring. I don't understand why this is here. This is useless. Like Alex, we're doing a series on Matthew. Great. Why didn't you skip to verse 18 and start there? Like, why did we just read 17 verses of this? Well, there's actually quite a lot of fascinating things happening in these verses. And that's what we're going to talk about today. And I hope that you'll begin to look at these passages completely different after today. That's my hope. That's a pretty high hope. I won't put any money on it, but we'll hope. First, there's a couple interesting things happening. But first, a genealogy tells us that Jesus wasn't a metaphor or a construct. Jesus just wasn't like, this is the ideal human expression, some idea that they created. He was a real historical flesh and blood person. Roman and Jewish historians confirm this. People reading about him, reading Matthew's account of his life and death and resurrection and ascension could trace his lineage all the way back to Abraham. Now, you might be, you might be wondering, where did Matthew get this information? Where do you think he got it? He, he could have asked people, yeah. Oh, Moses, maybe, yep. From strolls? Yeah, that's actually really close. Like in the temple, they kept detailed records for every family in Israel. And this was actually a really important thing. The ancient Jews were meticulous about keeping records of family lines because inheritance and land ownership was all based around your family line. And so in the temple, and that was why it was such a big deal when the temple ends up being destroyed after Jesus because of all this history. All this lineage, their entire record as a people was destroyed. But Matthew could go in there and say, I need to see the line of this person. And they could pull out the scrolls and show them the family line. The Jews were meticulous record keepers of family trees and lines. And they knew which land belonged to which people and had for generations. Um, And so Luke probably consulted these same records in the temple. Historians tell us though that Jesus's existence was undeniable. Now historians will argue that his genealogy has been arranged in a provocative way in Matthew chapter 1, but they can't deny that there was a first century man named Jesus. So if nothing else, that's why we have a genealogy. Jesus was real. He was a real person. When Matthew wrote this, people could go and track down and talk to his relatives and say, was it really a man named Jesus? But What do I mean when I say his genealogy has been arranged in a provocative way? Well, Matthew, as he tells us, arranges it in three sects of 14 uh, generations. And that's a deliberate pattern that Matthew has developed that he wants to convey. Matthew also traces Jesus's line through Joseph, where Luke, if you go to Luke chapter one, tracks Jesus's blood genealogy through Mary jesus had a legal right to the throne through joseph because he was joseph's heir but he had a blood right to the throne through mary because mary was also of the line of david matthew has chosen to leave some people out in order to create a structure of 14 14 14 which we'll talk more about in just a minute okay second reason that the genealogy is important the genealogy uh Any genealogy with names like Abraham and David in it would immediately alert Jewish readers that Jesus was checking important boxes to be the Messiah, the anointed one, the king who was coming to make all things right. God promised Abraham that the Messiah, the coming king, would come from his seed and offspring and would bless all the nations on earth. That's in Genesis 12.3. God promised David that the Messiah would be his descendant and would have a throne and a kingdom that would last forever. Second Samuel 7 16. Third reason the genealogy is important. um, A first century Jewish genealogy only tracked fathers, not mothers. So if you were writing out Jesus's genealogy in the first century Israel in a patriarchal society, you would not include a woman's name, but there are five women mentioned here in the line of Jesus. Throughout Matthew, we'll see Jesus confront and reject patriarchy and elevate women. And his genealogy starts that on page one of the story about his life. But the inclusion of Tamar, Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba and Mary was highly unusual. And these weren't just like random names. He's like, oh, there were some mothers in there. I'll throw in five random names, you know, because Jesus was, uh, he was pro woman. Um, These weren't ordinary women. Many of them were infamous for their sins and for their uh, really rough struggle of a life. Rahab, Ruth, and possibly Bathsheba weren't even Jewish. Tamar slept with her father-in-law. Rahab ran a brothel. Ruth made sexual advances in order to bag a husband. Bathsheba was forced into an affair. Matthew didn't include these names by accident. This was part of his careful design. See, Matthew wrote his gospel— Even more so than the other three in the style of the Old Testament authors as Jewish meditation literature. He filled it full of design patterns to provoke our imagination. He wants you to ponder it, not just read it and memorize facts. That's how we read as Westerners. Give me the information I need. So, I can pass the test and never have to think about it again, right? That's not the way Matthew's designed to be read. The Bible isn't an instruction manual that you read once and think, I got it, I never have to read it again. The Bible is designed like intricately patterned poetry. It is designed to be read and reread and reread, designed to be meditated upon, designed for you to see connections because you know the whole story so well that one little comment, one little quote, one little analogy can make you realize connections all over the place so matthew didn't randomly insert five names of women in a break with tradition without reason he wants us to ask okay this jesus is the descendant of abraham he's the descendant of david both those are check boxes to be the messiah but he is also the descendant of women Now, if we were Jewish and raised on the Old Testament scriptures since birth, we would immediately think of the first promise of a coming king, which was given to the first woman, Eve. I think by mentioning these women, he's prompting his readers to think back to the promise given to humanity in the garden. In Genesis 3.15, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and hers. There's going to be this battle between the dragon, between the snake, and between this descendant of women he will crush your head and you will strike his heel now Matthew doesn't come out and say Jesus is the offspring of women he's the snake crusher instead he includes women on the list so we ask questions what does it mean that he's also the descendant of women not just the descendant of Abraham and David but the descendant of women too it's like in a J.J. Abrams movie or a Christopher Nolan movie my favorite type of movies where they jump you right in you're like who is this person why are they running what just happened why'd they blow that up And then the rest of the movie kind of starts filling you in, and you're like, oh, that's why he did that back then. Oh, I see now. That's how Matthew writes. And as we start to work through the book of Matthew, we're going to see him do this a lot. Matthew thinks we're smart enough to get there on our own. He's not going to hold our hand. He's going to lace all this detail and information in. There's a lot going on in his gospel, and he doesn't do anything by accident. Matthew is meticulous. And clever, he's a brilliant writer, and he's putting layer on layer on layer on layer, so that you can read this and reread this and read the whole book and say, oh, Matthew is giving me a lens to look at the whole Bible, to see everything differently. It's not by accident that he includes these particular women above all the wives he could have mentioned in the lines, uh, in the line of Jesus. So let's briefly look at the stories of these women, except Mary. We're going to talk more about her next week. Um, These stories are further proof, by the way, that the Bible is more Game of Thrones than Game of Thrones. Uh, So just brace yourself. I mean, these stories are intense. These were not ladies who had easy lives. These ladies went through some terrible, terrible things. Tamar's story, mentioned in verse 3, is found in Genesis 38, verses 6 through 14. Now, Tamar was married to a man uh, who was so wicked that he was killed for his wickedness, leaving her childless and without an heir. Now, back then, without a male heir, she was destitute. She had nothing. So according to the Jewish law, her father-in-law was to marry her to the next son in the line, which he did. But that son was like, "Mm, I know how this works. If I give her a child, then that child will be heir to the firstborn, um, the firstborn inheritance instead of me as the secondborn son. So he says. I'm not gonna impregnate her. And so she still didn't have an heir, and he was killed for his wickedness for refusing to um <coughs> to provide a child to his sister-in-law, now his wife. So the second son dies. So now the father-in-law is supposed to marry her off to the next son. And he's like, He's too young. He's like, You get people killed. Like <laughs> he's too young. We're not gonna marry off. And she's like, This is what you're supposed to do, this is the Jewish law. I'm supposed to have Like I'm supposed to get what belongs to me. But he just kept trying to avoid it and avoid it and avoid it. And finally, she got desperate. And so she dressed up like a prostitute. She went down to where the father-in-law liked to find women, got his attention, slept with him, got pregnant. When the father-in-law found out that she was pregnant, he goes, you harlot, I'm going to kill you. Now that's some two-faced behavior right there when he's someone who often goes and finds harlots because she knew where he would go. And then when he's about to kill her, she says, by the way, it's your baby. I mean, this is, it's, this is not Game of Thrones right here. I mean, it just is. Um, and so she gets the air that she was deserved despite the fact that there were no good men who did what they were supposed to Tamar just wanted to find a good man who would do the right thing and that's the story of the entire Old Testament right there in a few uh, ten or so verses. We keep looking for a human who will be offered the choice between right and wrong and choose right but the best characters in the story of the Old Testament keep being, they're doing right, they're doing right, they're doing right, they're offered a choice between right and wrong, they choose wrong. Abraham, live by faith, live by faith, oh, lives by doubt, lives by fear, fails. Moses lives by faith, lives by faith. Oh, gets angry, breaks something, you know, like every, all the best characters in the story keep failing. We're looking for a good man and we can't find one. The best characters keep failing us. In Rahab's story, Rahab's mentioned in verse five, her story's found in Joshua two. Rahab is a Canaanite prostitute in Jericho. When Israel is taking the promised land, they spy on Jericho. These Israelites sneak in, and she hides them and helps them escape the city. Instead of siding with the city of her birth, she believes that God has given them into the hands of Israel. She believes what they say, that God has promised them the land. So when the city falls, her and her family and everyone in her house is spared. When the unconquerable kingdom of Jericho falls supernaturally, a remnant who believe by faith are saved even though they are sex workers from a brothel. I think Matthew just randomly picked that name out, right? That has no tie into the story of Jesus, right? Ruth's story is found in the book of Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite woman who marries an Israelite man. When her husband dies, she returns to Israel with her mother-in-law, but they have no man to inherit their family lands, they live in poverty. The mother-in-law devises a scheme to have Ruth Um, entreat the heir to the family land, a kinsman redeemer, to marry Ruth and so take up the act of restoring their land and assuming their debts. Boaz, the kinsman redeemer, goes to court, takes the necessary legal action to buy back the ancestral land that belonged to Ruth's husband and marry Ruth, rescuing her and her mother-in-law from ruin. Finally, Bathsheba's story, it's found in 2 Samuel eleven twelve. 12. Now, in the passage, it never says the name Bathsheba. It says Uriah's wife. And I don't think Matthew was like, man, what was her name again? Like, I went and did all that research at the temple for this, but I just can't remember, you know, Uriah's wife's name. No, Matthew's meticulous. He does everything because he has a reason matthew doesn't mention her name but only calls her uriah's wife because uriah was her rightful husband and she was snatched away from the relationship that should have defined her king david here in a story acting like a villain takes a woman that doesn't belong to him and kills her husband so that he can lay claim to her her true husband acts righteously in the story like king david's trying to scheme And Uriah keeps doing the right thing, keeps doing the right thing, keeps doing the right thing, and he's killed by a dark king on account of his bride. None of these women's story is random. Like, all these stories foreshadow the story of Jesus. They reveal glimpses into why he is here and what he has come to do. And then in verse 16, Matthew makes the claim that Jesus is the Messiah, the long-awaited king, the ruler who was and was yet to come, the snake crusher who would bless the world and whose role would last forever. The Jewish people thought he would be purely a military leader uh, set on toppling Babylon or previous in their history the Persians or Rome. But Matthew presents Jesus as setting his sights higher on overthrowing the dark forces on the throne of the world who empowered dark kingdoms like Babylon, Persia, and Rome. Now in verse 17, Matthew Uh, calls attention to his unique ordering of the genealogy here. He's like, by the way, did you notice I did three sets of 14? Like, isn't that a weird verse? Just look back at verse 17. He's like, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14, from 14, 14. He's like, I just want you to notice it in case you missed it. He's like, I know you're smart, and you're picking up on all these things. But in case you missed it, um, 14 generations in set of three, we will see in the book of Matthew as we work through it, Matthew loves to do things in sets of three over and over again. We'll see he uses the pattern of a set of three, which he pulls from the Old Testament as well. Um, Seven often appears in the scriptures as a sign of spiritual completeness. A seventh seven, which is 14, is like saying it's overflowing with completeness. But the number 14 would also remind the Jewish readers that on the 14th day of the month is when the Passover falls. Every year, the Passover is on the 14th day when god delivered the firstborn sons of israel from death that's the passover that's the celebration that's the remembrance spoiler alert guess when jesus dies on the passover matthew's tying all these things together you see how clever he is he's a great writer blood on the wooden doorpost at passover saved the sons of israel when death came to egypt now the blood of a son of israel will save the world from death when Jesus goes to the cross. Okay, now ready to nerd out a little bit more about the number 14? Um, so there are no vowels in Hebrew. So for instance, the name David would be like, in English, D, V, D. Okay, got that? Um, they also didn't have numbers. They would use their letters for counting. So they would count with their letters. And so there was a whole numeric system for the Hebrew letters and so if you took the Hebrew letters for dvd or the three letters that would be in the name David the first letter which would in our English be d would be the number four in Hebrew Um, the second number which would be v in English not in Hebrew would be the sixth letter in their alphabet and then d would be four again if you add up dvd four plus six plus four what do you get 14. Now, Matthew, come on. Like, Matthew's crazy. Like, he's just laying on these layers on layers. 14 is like saying the line of David, the line of kings. He's converting David's name into a number. And then he's like, hey, just if you have any questions, Jesus is the promised king. He's of the line of kings. He's like 14, 14, 14. He's like, David, 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 you know that promise. Coming Messiah, throne of David, this is him. He's just over and over again driving it home. Matthew's account of Jesus is filled with incredible design patterns to tell a cohesive story about who Jesus is and what his central message and mission are. I think the four women that Matthew included in his genealogy reveal that to us. Jesus was the righteous man that we've been looking for, like Tamar was looking for a righteous man. His Jesus's kingdom is open to anyone from any background from any lifestyle who embrace him as king by faith Just like rahab believed by faith that the land belonged to israel and her and her fellow prostitutes were saved He is our kinsman redeemer. He is near us in blood. He is human, but he is also above us in station He is divine just like ruth needed a kinsman redeemer who could reclaim Uh, who could reclaim the ancestral land and claim her debt and pay it. It is his mercy that will lift us out of despair, just like Boaz lifted Ruth and her mother-in-law out of despair. And he will lay claim to what was rightfully his and what was taken from him by a dark king. He will reclaim the relationship that was lost by a righteous death. Just like Uriah couldn't reclaim Bathsheba, Jesus will lay down his life though and take it up again to reclaim us. Tamar and Rahab, Ruth and Bathsheba were real historic women. The tears that they shed were real, the pain and the doubt they endured was real, but their lives were also the picture of a bigger story. There was more than going on than just what they experienced. Some of their stories ended in happiness and some didn't, but their small stories were part of a bigger story, a story that will have a good ending. A new king will take his throne and banish darkness and death and disease and despair forever. Your story and my story may have tears and pain and doubt, but the story of Jesus is good news because it means our stories are not simply small stories and then we die and our hope dies with us. Our small stories are woven into his big story and his big story has a happy end. When we weave our lives into his when we become citizens of his coming kingdom we change the ending to our stories we become part of an eternal story an eternal kingdom jesus is the messiah the lord and savior the once and rightful and future king he has come to bring good news that the kingdom of darkness is ending and the kingdom of the lamb is rushing in and prostitutes and adulterers, and outcasts, and the broken, and the hopeless, and the desperate are welcome there. They're welcome to become part of the family of God and to join the royal line of Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for coming. Thank you for dying. Thank you for leading Matthew to include something as seemingly pointless as a genealogy. Because even in those pages, in those few lines, you have woven the grand story of the entire Bible You have come to rescue what was lost by being a righteous man and dying in our place to buy back what is rightfully yours, to pay our debts so that we can be risen out of darkness and live in light. Jesus, we take this season to just stop and remind ourselves about how your coming shifted the entire story of the world. And you're still shifting the direction, the trajectory of people's stories today. Lord, I pray that you will come close to us and you will remind us of how you are are building your kingdom, even in the midst of death. Remind us that your coming is coming quickly. And may we live with hope because we know that the story of our lives is